You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Our other moderator today is a national security attorney, here moderating as an individual and not on behalf of her agency or firm. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Elisa, your other moderator. The ABA committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law, but never boring. Definitely not. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. And at the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. All right, today we launch our series on space law, the final frontier, pun intended, however lame. Uh, If your parents threw you in the back of the family van and took you to Star Trek conventions instead of play dates intended to develop your social skills, this is your podcast. For the rest of the podcast, I will insist on being called Leia Organa. (laughs) Okay. So I guess that makes me Ray today. All right. Our guest today is a distinguished professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, Dr. Hertzfield. And it is an honor to have you here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Look forward to talking with you. For our listeners, Dr. Hertzfeld is an expert in the economic, legal, and policy issues of space and advanced technological development. Dr. Hertzfeld joined the Space Policy Institute in 1992, and his research projects have included studies on the privatization of the space shuttle, remember that, the economic benefits of NASA, research and development expenditures, and the socioeconomic impacts of Earth's observation technologies, which we will be addressing in a later podcast with another guest. Dr. Hertzfeld has served as a senior economist and policy analyst at both NASA and the National Science Foundation and has been a consultant to many U.S. and international organizations, including a recent project on space applications with OECD, which is what? Yeah, an international organization, mainly for economists in Paris, the Organization for Cooperative Economic Development, and the U.S. is a member, and uh, they were doing a study on Space 2030 a few, about five, ten years ago, and I spent some time working with them on, on that. Excellent. So how is space law a matter of national security in sort of a more terrestrial way? Well, almost in all ways, because almost everything that you put in space has dual use. It can either be used for uh, defense or uh, security purposes, or it has um, civil government or even uh, commercial use. So it's hard to separate the two in space. All right, so let's talk about some of the different issues that you've also done an amazing TED Talk, which I think we're going to hyperlink uh, at the in the notes to this podcast. But let's talk about what you've called sort of human governance or of space activities or human behavior in space. 
uh, and some of the legal principles that govern, I guess, our behavior as human beings in outer space. Back in, about, uh, after the, um, we started launching things in space, late 50s, early 1960s, the only two nations with access to space were the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, but there was a committee formed in the United Nations called COPUS, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Originally, it had a, uh, about 19 or 20 members, uh, member nations. And that's the group that has drafted uh, treaties and General Assembly resolutions, but we'll focus on the treaties uh, dealing with space activities. And the master document ratified... Uh, and went into force in 1967, uh, is the shorthand is the Outer Space Treaty, but really it is a treaty on human activity in space and human exploration and use of space. So that's uh, the master document. Several other treaties have followed the um, rescue and re agreement on rescue and return of astronauts was almost immediately yeah, uh, drafted and, and ratified after the Outer Space Treaty. And then there's a convention on registration of space objects, uh, a convention on liability, and uh, in the 19, um, late 1970s, a moon agreement. The moon agreement is the only one that really um, has not been ratified by very many nations. The Outer Space Treaty has been ratified or signed by about 130 nations. The Moon Agreement only by 20 nations. And uh, so that one's more of a failed treaty. The other ones uh, really form the basis of space law. There are basic principles in all of these treaties have lasted for a long time, at least as uh, goals and ideals and uh, what we work towards. Uh, international cooperation in space, um, freedom of access, no sovereignty in space, no weapons of mass destruction, and um, freedom of, of um, access for all nations to space, and of course the sharing of information, mainly aimed at scientific information. So those seemed like sensible principles. Let me just dial back for a second. On the OST, you said there are 130 nations. Is the United States one of the signatories of that treaty, the Outer Space Treaty? Oh, yes. Yeah. It only took five nations to, for it to go into force, uh, five ratifications for it to go into force. That happened very quickly. And uh, every space, major spacefaring nation has uh, ratified or signed that treaty. And uh, e even Iran and North Korea uh, are signatory, uh, are uh, have ratified it and deposited the documents. In essence, in the beginning, uh, when um, it was drafted, it was pretty much the United States and the Soviet Union protecting themselves and setting up these uh, international goals and guidelines. So both nations did ratify that treaty. And even today, when we have uh, any new space law, there's almost always a clause in, the, in our law saying that at least we interpret this and feel as though it, we are abiding by our international commitments under that treaty. Wow. That's so. a, a long time. Yeah. Okay, there are some other principles, I think, that come out of, if not those treaties, some of the other treaties, and you'll have to 
direct me in the, into the right treaty here, but one of the principles is that each state is responsible for the actions of their citizens and for continuous supervision of what their citizens are doing in space. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, pretty close. Okay. <laughs> Correct that if, it, if need be. Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty basically makes nations responsible, internationally responsible, uh, which is an unusual term. And, uh, and one needs a little discussion at some point, uh, internationally responsible for their national activities in space. Anything in space, any space object that's put up there, should be identified with at least one nation. And that nation is, uh, takes on this international responsibility. Also within Article 6, is another clause that says that not only are nations responsible for their activities, national ones, but for the activities of non-governmental entities. And within that, the idea is authorization and continuing supervision. Those are words in, in the treaty uh, of those activities. So that sets up a responsibility of a nation for what its companies and its citizens might do in space. How that's interpreted can differ among nations, but it is the basis for the regulations and the licensing of commercial space in most nations that have companies in, um, involved in space activities. And, and just to sort of maybe state the obvious here, space activities include an enormous number of things, but including the placement of, of satellites. Oh, yeah. These private yes. space exploration missions that are... Um, growing in number, um, and what else would you say is encompassed by the non-government entities portion of that, uh, just for our listeners to sort of better understand? It can be anything from communication satellites to satellites, uh, we call them remote sensing satellites, basically take uh, pictures of the Earth, yeah, then there are terrestrial activities analyzing that, those, uh, the data that come from those. At least in the United States, the uh, position navigation timing satellites, what we loosely recall, uh, call GPS, the navigation mm. uh, applications, are actually not private. They're military government satellites. But other nations have taken more of a public-private partnership approach to that, particularly in Europe, in the um, Galileo program of the uh, European Union. The governments do have a responsibility, basically safety. And when we're talking about um, the U.S. government anyway and others too, there's a financial responsibility involved. If there is an accident in space, there's liability. Ah, So tort law applies in the stratosphere and above. Yeah, it's the liability convention separates two types. One is if something comes down and causes damage on Earth, there's an absolute liability to the uh, launching state, and you can identify the material that came down, and uh, they are responsible basically to make um, people whole or property, uh, you know, the way it was, return it to the way that it was. If there's an accident in space, uh, it is a fault liability basis. But of course, this was all written in the 1960s. We weren't really prepared to define fault. And the treaties say, well, if you can't figure out who's at fault, then there's joint liability among the launching states. And you can have multiple launching states for any satellite. Wow. 
So that uh, that's could be a problem as we move forward in trying to figure so, out how we um, assign liability and get evidence that is good enough to determine fault. Okay, and another issue is that it requires, I guess, space activity be for a peaceful purpose. It does say that. Uh, it specifically also prohibits weapons of mass destruction, and those days basically nuclear, from being placed in orbit or placed on a celestial body. It did not prohibit uh, nuclear weapons from being transported through space. There's a difference between going up and coming back down and going up and into orbit, of course. So, Unless uh, there's an accident, there, there can be questions of liability pertaining to whatever happened. Of course, but the, probably not under the, tre the uh, treaty itself, probably under other law. I would think so. Uh, yes, space uh, is deemed to be for peaceful purposes, and the treaties refer back, of course, to the United Nations Charter as well. But defining peaceful purposes can be a little bit difficult. There is nothing, for example, specifically in the treaties that prohibits weapons in space. And often the uh, way peaceful purposes has been somewhat defined is non-aggressive. So if we use communication satellites, as we do, and other nations too, to communicate from the United States, let's say, to a theater zone, a war zone, and maneuver, manipulate weapons or whatever on, on terrestrially, that's always been accepted. Just as taking pictures, uh, the remote sensing Earth observation satellites that may have military significance or even treaty verification significance, uh, that's okay. Okay, so it, it would sound, listening to you, that our national security and, frankly, a lot of our convenience... Mm -hmm as a society right now, really depends on these objects in space, broadcasting back to us information that might be tell us where our adversaries are located, might tell us even more information. Well, there are two things here. One is that uh, the military defense department has designed a number of systems to be dependent on space as because it has obvious advantages in point-to-multi-point communications and uh, it's a high ground, you can see a lot from up there and so on. It's within the last 15 or 20 years, though, that terrestrial applications have been used more and more by all sorts of companies and individuals and now we have much more dependence on space applications in the commercial world than we had uh, 20 years ago. So space is now, we are dependent in many ways on having continuous uh, use of space. And without it, uh, we'd have quite a bit of disruption, at least for a while. And space is risky and vulnerable, and not just from uh, for military purposes, there are natural things too, like the sunspots and the electromagnetic storms can also disrupt satellites and space activities. So that uh, there are vulnerabilities in a number of ways, and we try to protect the equipment as much as we can. Let me ask you, though, one of the, the hopes is that we would discover minerals or things on other planets, but it doesn't sound, or at least I haven't heard you say yet, that these treaties 
really govern the ownership. And I remember listening to your TED Talk, one of the things that you talked about was sort of the number of national interests that have been claimed in the moon. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't think we're, in the near term, going to have agreement among nations on uh, the ownership of resources in space. The United States has had a long-term policy of government owning the moon rocks, for example, that it brought back. If you, own, if you have a moon rock here in this country that was brought back by the United States, it's a criminal offense. The government will come and knock on your door. Not true in the Soviet Union or in Russia, where they've even auctioned off some. So this is up to national interpretation. The Japanese sent a uh, mission, Hayabusa, to an asteroid, took some dust samples in the back, and I believe they're sitting in a museum in Japan now. In 2015, there was a Title IV of the Commercial Space Act amendments codified the U.S. policy. It only applies to U.S. companies or those under the jurisdiction of the United States. And it essentially says that if you obtain resources in, from an asteroid or in space, and the moon is part of the same environment as are the planets, that you can own it. It does not say how you would uh, obtain it. There, there are things left out that have to be resolved. Do you need to make a claim of some sort? Do you need a license? All of these things. Um, what about harmful interference if, you're, if something goes wrong while you're doing, uh, obtaining it? So that, there are a lot of unanswered questions, but the general policy that, yes, you can own resources is our interpretation in the United States of basically Article two, 1 and 2 of the Outer Space Treaty. Article 2 is very clear, saying no nation may appropriate the moon's celestial bodies, and by any means, declaring sovereignty or by use. By you can't, you can't adversely possess a moon by putting something no. up there and starting to exploit it. So the bottom it. line is we put a flag on the moon. We never claimed anything about ownership of the moon itself. And this still has to be internationally worked out, but there are other nations now that are um, uh, at least proposing or even passing laws similar to the one in the United States about ownership. So that uh, there's, there's no international resolution on this, but there are interpretations that can be different and that seem to be accepted as at least a start in trying to define this. Right. Well, we've seen a number of private companies state that they have certain goals with respect to space. And of course, one is SpaceX. And their website says, SpaceX designs, manufactures, and launches advanced rockets and spacecraft. The company was founded in 2002 to revolutionize space technology with the ultimate goal of enabling people to live on other planets. To your point, though, it seems like a lot of that is unresolved. They've got an interesting corporate goal if there are still unresolved issues with respect to celestial bodies and use of space. Can you talk for a minute about what we're seeing right now with private sector space companies? Well, we're seeing several things. We're seeing a maturity of space technologies over the years. And frankly, private companies have been involved since the beginning in the United States. 
approximately 80% of NASA's budget goes to private companies and has even going back to the days of Apollo. So it's nothing new. What is new, first of all, is the way of contracting. The government is trying to provide incentives to just buy services or goods from private companies uh, when they do something in space or for, for transportation to space. Pre previously, the companies were building things for the government that the government would then take, and they were, they were built under very stringent st specifications. Now the net government saying, give me a launch vehicle that will go and take something to the moon or to Mars. And it's up, more up to the companies to decide how to do it and at what cost. So there, there are some basic differences. But in terms of actual investment, uh, between NASA and the uh, military and a few other agencies, the United States spends something on the order of $40 billion a year on space. NASA's up to about 20 of that. The investment on the private sector has been in the order in the last few years of a billion to a billion and a half dollars. So it's still quite small. Significant and growing is a trend over the years. But a lot of these things are very long-term investments, very long-term projects, more than most businesses usually invest in. I think it's important to point out that the government is still an anchor tenant for most of their products, and they are building launch vehicles using pretty traditional technologies so that uh, the price may be a bit cheaper, and there may be more competition a bit uh, in, in the industry, but I don't think that, at least in the near term, we have any real breakthrough that's going to make it very cheap. Another aspect of the gro growth of private companies has been smaller companies doing some very innovative things. Now, they're not doing the splashy launch vehicle projects but they've also been encouraged, you know, particularly in robotics, artificial intelligence, a number of other ways, things where they're doing useful things here on Earth and looking ahead at new technologies, but things that are also going to have use in space. And uh, 3D printing in space, there's a company doing that, some really wild ideas. So I, I think that we're seeing a change, but it's not quite as radical as what you might always read in the paper. And if you listen carefully, most of the entrepreneurs recognize that uh, this is a long-term and a risky project, and the government is really a partner with them in one way or another, at least for now. Okay, so um, do you see any sort of space race, perhaps not of the drama and scale, but do you see any of that going on at the present time? It's a difficult question. I think space race is probably not the right term that was used when we were vying with the Soviet Union to go to the moon and show that we had better technology than they did. It's very clear, though, that other nations have spent a lot of money and are developing capabilities in space. China certainly is. India Russia, to some extent, and Russia, of course, has a lot of inherent capability from what they've learned in the past. You know, if uh, the, the, the security uh, uh, of our satellites and our equipment in space is certainly of concern, and uh, note that within the last couple of years, really for the first time, 
people from the uh, representatives from the Defense Department actually are allowed to talk about war fighting in space. But uh, I think at the moment it is more of a protection and defense rather than something we're thinking about as an offense. And I, I would add that if we really got into serious offensive actions in space, it wouldn't be good for anybody because we already have a debris problem in certain orbits. Okay, so uh, this is the point in, in the podcast where we always ask a hypothetical question, but imagine for a moment that I'm a young lawyer living in Adams Morgan, and I have a friend who's, let's say, South African, uh, no resemblance to anyone we've heard of. He's a wild man, but he's brilliant, and he's starting a private space exploration company, and he wants to hire me to do some legal work for him. So what issues should I be thinking about broadly, um, and what should I do to develop expertise in the area of space law? Well, well my reaction to the first question is make sure he can pay you. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> Good advice. But more seriously, there's plenty of literature out there now. In uh, There are books been written about space law. There are journal articles coming out quite frequently, and there are a couple of journals. Uh, there's journal Space Law. Uh, it comes out of the University of Mississippi. There's one produced in Cologne, Germany, by an institute there, and there are others. Um, and then there are some classes, uh, some courses here in the Washington area. There are at least three universities offering a space law course. Uh, George Washington, which I teach, the uh, Georgetown um, American University all have courses and have for many years. The UN uh, Office of Outer Space Affairs, uh, which is the uh, organization under uh, the COPUS Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, has a very good website with a lot of their materials that are published and uh, all the treaties and a lot of the history and uh, other documentation. That's that's a useful uh, place to go, and there are other other websites out there too than people specialize in this. So I, the information is there. But as I tell my classes, a lot of these questions about um, activities in space, there are a lot of right answers, but there are also some wrong ones. But there isn't one right answer today to many of these questions because of the way uh, the nations have interpreted the rules and because of the, uh, the, the fact that even the treaties being compromised language uh, have def definitional issues among uh, plenty of the terms there that need clarification. And we have very little case law. Most of it's analogies to other situations. Most of the lawsuits or the settlements that have occurred have dealt with uh, intellectual property and things of that sort, which are uh, contractual issues, rather than uh, hypothetical situations that are fun to think about. But someday they're going to be serious questions. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here today, and we hope that you'll come back. Sure. And join us again for another episode. Be glad to. Uh, <laughs> great. So I think we have to say at the end of this, or I have to say at the end of this podcast, hey, everybody here, thanks for coming in. We miss Yvette today, and may the force be with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for that, Elisa. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode.
So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, or be the in-house counsel on a roving spacecraft, which could also cause some previously unconsidered vitamin deficiencies, or you're just smart enough to know that national security law, including space law, gives you a front row seat to history and you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance or from the ground without training your eyes on the rest of the universe. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Just remember, social networking isn't really networking, so it's going to be important for you to show up once in a while. And don't forget, every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, which is also available on the website. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.